This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, how Brown Girl Outdoor World is changing the narrative, increasing your confidence when it comes to money, and making the case for the Commonwealth Games. But we begin with the next phase in the pandemic. There's been a distinct shift in public health messaging here in Ontario. The province's chief medical officer of health, Dr. Kieran Moore, along with the premier and the health minister, are among a number of top health and government officials now adopting the phrase, learning to live with COVID-19. So how are we, the public, to interpret that messaging, the shift from stay home to learn to live with it? Professor Ray Dianandon is our first guest. He is an epidemiologist, a science communicator, and associate professor at the University of Ottawa. Thank you for joining us on the feed, Ray. My pleasure to be here. So is there a problem with officials using the term learn to live with COVID, in your opinion? Yeah, I think there is, and here's why. First, it's the phraseology that was used by COVID minimizers throughout the pandemic, suggesting that our public health response was always an overreach, and never was, in my opinion. So there's the first thing. The second thing is that it signals surrender. So living with COVID isn't pretending that the virus doesn't exist. It isn't doing away with all the public health measures is simply accepting that there's going to be some level of transmission probably for the foreseeable future. And it doesn't also imply that there isn't still some tasks incumbent upon the citizens to perform. So we're not going back to 2019 normal anytime soon, but we're going to approach it. So I'm not sure what the best phraseology needs to be, but living with the disease suggests some sort of untoward gray burden, which I don't think properly describes our future. And it's interesting, you do use the word surrender. That certainly is one connotation. Learn to live with COVID. Why do you think officials are using that phrase? And is it in a way having them say, we give up? I mean, to me, that's kind of what it signals. I give up. Yeah, it should definitely not be I give up. I think they've chosen... That phrase, uh, I don't want to say laziness, but there's some laziness there. They really haven't given it a lot of thought, and that phrase was bandied about for many, many months, and so they just uh, retreated to it. Um, I don't know what I'd prefer. I think something to the extent that we are going to be relaxing measures, and we should not expect a full elimination of this disease. Um, so people should be cognizant that it's going to be with us for some time, but our lives will return to some semblance of normal probably sooner rather than later. So those of us who are hearing that phrase, you know, we, the general public, for me and and for those that I have spoken with in my circle of friends, it's kind of a, okay, well, maybe that means that we didn't need to get vaccinated. Maybe that means that we don't need to wear masks. We don't need to isolate when we're not feeling well. We don't need to, uh, you know, social distance. Is that what some of us are hearing, do you think, Ray? I think that is what some people are hearing, and that's why I'm concerned. Look, uh, a colleague online sent me an interesting tweet saying that, why do we want to go back to 2019 normal? 2019 normal is what got us into this in the first place. What we should be doing is trying to build a better, more resilient public health future. That includes normalizing 
not going to work when you're sick. That includes normalizing wearing a mask when you're sick or when you're not feeling particularly safe. That includes pushing vaccination often and with vigor. So the the learning to live with the disease, if I can use that phraseology, and I hate using it, yeah. must include normalizing some uh, some public health behaviors that we took our eye off in the past couple of generations. So um, I'm an optimist. I, I think we're headed towards a good future so long as there's high compliance in the population with retaining some public health measures. You know, there are still plenty of risks when it comes to this virus. How do we assess the risks uh, when it comes to COVID-19? Yeah, um, there's risks to be assessed at the population level and at the individual level. And most people care about the individual level. But the population level has to do with things like, is transmission high enough to threaten our healthcare system? At the individual level, it's uh, how do I make decisions about my life? Uh, is it safe to go to that party or whatever? So at the individual level, what you should be looking at is, have you done everything that you can do to minimize exposure and infection. And that means accepting three doses of vaccination and encouraging your family members to do so as well. It means not exposing yourself to other people when you've got symptoms of a disease, even in non-COVID times. You know, that's a good thing to do. It also means if you have someone in your life who is susceptible, that is a child under five, for example, that can't be vaccinated or an immunocompromised person, you might be making more restrictive choices for the foreseeable future than other people will. So unfortunately, there's going to be some heterogeneity in what individual risk means. So what are anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers and those who just refuse to participate in the public health uh, guidance, what what do they take away from learn to live with COVID-19? I think they're taking away the wrong message, which is that they were right all along and they were not right all along. They're emphatically wrong. Some new data I was looking at from Public Health Ontario suggests that the risk of the unvaccinated dying of COVID is greater than the risk of getting cancer from smoking in some age groups. You know, it's pretty high. So I think for for those groups, um, their precariousness probably just increased because the rest of us aren't going to take care of them anymore when the uh, when the public health restrictions come down. And what I mean by taking care of them is me wearing my mask all the time and, and curtailing my exposures, I'm preventing them from being exposed and infected. When that stops happening, I expect the suffering rate for the anti-vaxxers to increase. So do you think that the public health measures that we have adopted over the past two years, some of us have clung to them over the past couple of years, like hand sanitizing, physical distancing, staying at home when you're sick, mask wearing, do you think that they will remain in place? No, I don't. Uh, I think hand sanitizing should be normalized because it's good all year round for the common cold, for the flu. It doesn't work that well for COVID, to be frank, but it's good for other things. Physical distancing, that's going to go probably pretty quickly because the human animal needs to be close to other people. What we might see is maybe um, uh, normalizing of working from home, of having Zoom meetings instead of those interminable, ridiculous in-person meetings we're all used to. Maybe handshakes would be less common. Maybe the hugging of strangers would be less common. I don't know. Um, what I'm absolutely certain of is that masks will be normalized 
like we have in Asia, where if you're not feeling well, you wear a mask on the subway. That's fantastic. We will see the normalizing, I think, of people staying away from others if we have symptoms or if they have symptoms. And I think, uh, again, optimistically, I think we're looking at possibly a new era of understanding that my actions affect you and your actions affect me uh, from a public health standpoint. And again, I'm, maybe I'm being Pollyanna-ish there because there are plenty of examples of people not accepting that reality. But for the majority, that is the case. So um, a new normal includes a greater understanding of the interwovenness of the fabric of society. Interesting. Now we're talking phil- philosophically at this point. Let's go back to <laughs> let's go back to physically. A lot of people who are not in the know, people like me and others who are not epidemiologists and so on, are kind of thinking, okay, well maybe I react to this now or will in the future like I react to the flu. That that there will be parallels in how we uh, treat the the onset of COVID-19 the way we would the flu. I think there's some reality there. Uh, ultimately, when there is sufficient population immunity, when people are regularly getting vaccinated for it, it will become like the flu. And the deniers were always saying it's just the flu. Well, vaccination has made it much like the flu because if you're triply vaccinated, you get infected with the Omicron, Omicron variant. In any case, your chances of having a, a bad reaction are quite small. So we'll get there. And I think what's going to happen is um, booster shots will be unrolled in parallel with the flu shot, not every year, maybe every few years, uh, and not for the rest of our lives. uh, There will come a time when this thing retreats sufficiently that we won't have to worry about it anymore. So um, while COVID-19 will be with us in some capacity for the rest of our lives, it may not be newsworthy or noticeable for the rest of our lives, much like chickenpox or measles or things you don't think about unless it's time for your kids to get the shots. Can I get your reaction to a quote from Dr. Kieran Moore? He recently said when he was asked to expand on his learning to live with COVID comments. So here's the quote. We've had two years where we've been very fearful of this virus and the strains have changed over time. So as a society, to decrease that fear will take time for us to normalize living with this virus. Um, I don't think he's wrong there. Uh, there is a lot of fear still baked into the system, and that's unfortunate. Because frankly, we never should have been afraid of this at the individual level, except for some people with certain you know, uh, vulnerabilities. We should always have been afraid of this at a systemic level. It was always a challenge to our healthcare system and to the school system, possibly for you know, long-term disability issues for long COVID. But individually, it's wrong to panic about this. Um, so some of the messaging has inculcated that level of fear. We have to retreat from that a bit. So um, he's not wrong there. Uh, what we need to do is redirect that fear, that intensity, that passion towards building a surveillance system to prevent the next big public health crisis. Hopefully, we won't lose our eye on that ball. Um, but yeah, I don't think he's wrong there. Uh, retreat from the fear, but maintain concern and vigilance. And what do you think in the here and now, as opposed to looking to the future and better surveillance, what what needs to be done to secure our healthcare system? What has been done to adapt to the changes brought on by COVID-19 and what should be done in the future? There's a paper from 2007, I always quote, it talks about the lessons learned from SARS. And there are three findings there. The first is uh, animal husbandry is bad for human health. That's my vegan propaganda talking. We have, <laughs> these diseases always come out of our close association with uh, animals. That's neither here nor there. The second is that um, 
uh, you, you act early, you act hard. Right? And the third one, though, is we got to be transparent in our communications. We didn't do a good job of that either. So going forward, a couple things we have to do. One is we have to improve our surveillance system so we can detect new cases as they come. The second is we really have to get better at communicating and understanding that communication involves assuaging people's political fears and uh, dampening the, the ability of disinformation agents to flood the airways of disinformation, but also to keep our vaccine platforms alive so that we as a nation can produce vaccines quickly. Um, and we have to look at things like uh, paid sick days and other kinds of systemic societal interventions that can make us resilient. We've learned a lot from this pandemic. Now, will we act on these, what we've learned? I don't know. Professor Ray Dianandan, epidemiologist, science communicator specializing in global health. What is your message right now? Oh, boy. Hmm. My message is all pandemics end. Even if we do everything wrong, this one will end as well. Our goal is to have it end sooner rather than later with minimal human suffering. We'll get out of this. And when we do, we will have the gift of some level of population immunity, a better understanding of global dynamics, and maybe a better respect for the awesome power of infectious disease. Well put. Thank you very much for joining us on the feed. A pleasure. My pleasure. Our next stop takes us inside Oak Valley Health, where the battle continues against the virus. Tina Cortez with that story. Dr. Christina Papa is an ER doctor and the lead at the Clinical Assessment and Vaccination Center at Markham Stouffville Hospital. Dr. Papa, terrific to speak with you again. Thank you. Good morning, and thank you for having me, Tina. On March 11, 2020, the WHO declared COVID a pandemic. A month from now or so, we will mark two years of life with COVID. Describe for our listeners what it was like for you, Dr. Papa, in those early days, through the first and second wave, the arrival of vaccines, and then take us to where you are now. So, Tina, um, it's actually a long journey. If we think back, it's only two years that we're going to just mark in less than a month from now. But it seems like forever for us, uh, particularly for people in healthcare system. And I'm sure it is forever for everybody out there, um, for all the patients that they were diagnosed with COVID and for all the patients and for all everybody that would last through this pandemic. Um, we were really hit hard uh, on everybody and everybody um, after two years. Um, it's been, pandemic is still here. Um, I just I want to say right now, we are just hoping that um, we learn a lot going through these two years and that uh, hopefully it's still there and hopefully we're going to be out of here. We're going to be out of this pandemic together. So when the pandemic started, in, um, um, we all um, be... Um, so um, eager to help, uh, particularly uh, in the hospitals, healthcare. We knew this is coming and we knew this is going to hit us hard. So uh, we started actually to implement a lot of um, 
in the hospital, particularly in uh, Oak Valley Health, we implemented a command center, we implemented a town hall meeting, and we started to actually change everything through the hospital, including the way we're going to talk about it and uh, how we're going to care for these patients. There were a lot of unknown. Um, uh, we did not know much about the virus itself, um, and we were trying to prepare as much as possible to care for every single patient, from a patient that uh, will come in a very dire, like a respiratory distress, uh, which we needed to run codes on, uh, to the patients that they had really uh, mild symptoms. So um, it was a lot of learning, and the learning curve was really acute for us, really um wanted to make sure everybody is safe and make sure everybody's safe as a patient and safe from our um, healthcare, um, from the nurses to uh, the physicians uh, to the um, um, PSWs in the hospital, porters, everybody. We wanted to make sure that all our people are safe and in such a way that they can take uh, a safe um care of those patients. The wave one hit us really hard. The uh, emergency department was full of COVID patients and the ICU, uh, as you know, it was um, um, basically hit very hard. Uh, some of our staff and um, from nurses and physicians, they did not go home, particularly in ICU for weeks at end. Um, that was in first wave one. Um, then we got a break and then we got to the safe um, part and then we moved towards the, uh, the wave two. It seems right now it's wave three, four, five. We're still kind of going through this, but every single wave is better and better. We learn uh, more from how we treat COVID and then we got more treatments available for the patients, including the um programs how to monitor them at home, which is called the COVID at home program. Uh, meantime, we got the vaccination uh, and we roll with the vaccination to make sure that people will not get the disease. So what happened then with the introduction, the arrival of vaccines? So the arrival of the vaccine, Tina, was very exciting for us. Um, we were just really so uh, grateful and we were so happy um, to have something that was proven is going to help us not um, get the disease. Um, it was so much excitement at that time. Um, we um, tried to enroll every single patient that was eligible initially through the vaccine. And we started with the most vulnerable ones, particularly with patients in long-term care. Um, we knew the vaccine is going to work so well. Uh, so we started the implementation there. And then we rolled the implementation um, with the, the uh, healthcare workers. We wanted to make sure people will be safe to continue to take care of the patients. And then we move on with the implementation for uh, the patients. Um, 
as uh, we um, as all like uh, at uh, Oak Valley Health, um, we went in collaboration with two other hospitals um, from South Lake and Mackenzie, and we were actually sending most of our healthcare workers to those two hospitals initially. And when the vaccine was approved in our organization, we rolled out the vaccine internally in the hospital. We did vaccinate um, a lot of our people um, internally. Um, <coughs> Uh, and we made like an open vaccination clinic um, into the hospital. And then we moved on and we uh, opened up the mass vaccination clinic at Cornell. This was done in collaboration with the public health and all our um, community partners. Uh, we collaborated with all the primary care, with all the entities from the long-term care and with the public health. And we opened that huge bath vaccination clinic in Cornell, which uh, like in the end ended up vaccinated almost 2,000 people a day. Um, the uh, Cornell vaccination clinic is still open currently. Um, uh, we um, continue to uh, work in collaboration with the public health and all our community uh, partners. Now, you're also the lead of the Clinical Assessment Center. What happens there? So, at the uh, Clinical Assessment Center, uh, Tina um, um, is um, a um, um, it's a clinic. Uh, we started more uh, initially like a what we call an assessment clinic. Uh, where um, initially we were swabbing all the um, um, population that needed to be swabbed. We started it as an assessment center, and at one point initially in the pandemic, in the first wave, we were seeing up to 500, 600 patients, uh, which um, were uh, assessed by the physicians, and then they were actually swabbed. Um, we were working in this in collaboration with the Ontario Health and the Public Health. Over time, we... Um, um, they transition into what we call currently a clinical assessment center. We wanted to make sure that the patients have a place safe to be assessed for their symptoms, regardless if they will be swabbed or not. And so currently that's what the assessment center or the clinical assessment center is doing right now. And for the adult population, um, we actually can involve patients in a COVID at home program, which we can monitor their symptoms safely at home. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about the COVID at home program. How does it work? So, uh, Tina, the COVID at home program was a program that was decided and was um, thought about it uh, way back in wave one and uh, wave two of the pandemic. Uh, we noticed uh, at that time that uh, we wanted to make sure that the patients are safely monitored. We could, we realized that we cannot admit all patients in the hospital. Some patients will come to uh, the hospital with um, symptoms, was severe uh, symptoms, and uh, they needed to be uh, admitted and even treated in ICU. So we wanted to make sure that for the patients that are coming uh, to our hospital um, at Oak Valley Health, uh, both sides, Markham side and uh, Oxbridge side, 
that the minute we send them home, they will be home safe and we can monitor their symptoms. Um, their symptom, we will be uh, watching those patients daily or as you fit until either they actually get better from the COVID or when they make sure that in case they will be compensated, that we'll be able to bring them back into assessment at the hospital and to follow up with treatment um, as admission um, required. Dr. Papa, just before I let you go, many have said lately society at large needs to learn to live with COVID. Do you agree with this, and and what exactly does that mean? COVID impacted everybody, and COVID will continue to impact everybody. COVID, um, it is a virus. So viruses, the way they function, they will um, mutate, Um, and um, they will continue to be uh, part of us. Uh, We're not going to think, I don't think we'll ever be going to get rid of the virus, um, particularly coronavirus. Coronavirus as part of um, any other virus, uh, respiratory viruses, uh, like a flu and cold. Um, so I think part of it and the mention of it will be that we will have to make sure that we'll uh, continue to safely monitor and we'll continue to safely do um uh, protect the most uh, vulnerable part of our population, but in such a way that we continue to incorporate this in day-by-day treatment and day-by-day monitoring. Um, bottom line, I'm thinking uh, following public health measures, um, which including getting vaccinated, cleaning your hands frequently, wearing a mask, and physically distancing from others continues to be our best line of defense against COVID-19 and its variants. Um, so just through doing these measures, I think we can move forward through the, uh, as a society, but, in fact, but also continuing and living with this and nutrients being available, I think we can incorporate moving forward with this, uh, with this uh, um, uh, virus. If our listeners want more information about Paxlovid, the Clinical Assessment Center, or the COVID at Home program, where can they find it? Um, so currently, um, you can uh, everybody can access uh, those uh, information at oakvalleyhealth.ca. Uh, uh, it's our website. Um, everybody can have information there regarding the COVID, regarding uh, what symptoms they can watch for, and regarding the uh, clinical assessment center, um, how people can be tested, uh, all those things uh, on that side that I mentioned. After the break, the adventures of Brown Girl Outdoor World. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Black History Month on 1059 The Region. Listen live at 1059theregion.com. Welcome back. Black History Month means many things to many people. To Demisha Dennis, the founder of Brown Girl Outdoor World, it's changing the narrative through adventure. 
Welcome to the feed, Demisha. It is so great to hear from you. Thank you for having me. So talk to us about this idea. Where did you come up with Brown Girl Outdoor World and really why? Well, Brown Girl Outdoor World started as a whole uh, movement to get people, of, especially women of color, into the outdoors. I will tell you that initially we started and wanted to create a space for everyone uh, of color to get outside, but kind of pigeonholed ourselves with the name Brown Girl Outdoor World and created an audience specific to women. And that kind of, you know, ballooned into being one of the greatest things I've ever made a mistake on. You are encouraging women who are Black, Indigenous, persons of color to take part in outdoor activities, one would sort of think that that was just a given, living in a a province like Ontario where there are, you know, great expanses of green and and mountains and hills and valleys and so on. What was the issue? The issue was the lack of representation in marketing, advertising, and just the general invitation to folks of color to say, hey, there's a space out here for you as well. Everything we saw spoke to the narrative of it being a conversation around who was already there, who was already there with through having access and information and not any new initiatives to say, hey, folks, there are people who are migrating to Canada, who are immigrating to Canada, who've never had these experiences with this landscape. How are we going to get them out there? So through BGOW, we created that conversation to say, we're going to to create a space in which you're welcome and we're going to take you to the spaces that we're inviting you to. You focus on women between the age of 24 and 40. Why that age group? It's generally been the, the, the uptake to what we've, um, we've seen, but also we work a lot in educating the educators. Um, there's so many programs that are focused on giving this information to youth and saying, hey, we run after-school programs, we run summer programs, but no one's giving this information to parents to say, when the summer programs are not operating, when the after-school programs are not operating, you as a decision-maker and sometimes a breadwinner in the household has the ability and has the knowledge to take your kids, yourself, or your family into these spaces to have some of these same experiences. So we focus on gener- on educating the educator. Yeah, and also, I, I know that you are understanding at this point, or at least prior to when you started the group, established the group, that advertising wasn't geared toward women of color. Uh, it, it marketing wasn't geared toward women of, of color, black women, indigenous, and women of color. Why do you think that they were excluded from that kind of uh, targeted advertising? I think if we go back and we can take a historical look or we can even look at the way things are presented to us presently, the whiteness is a, do- is a dominant, dominant um, narrative in this space. It's a dominant image that you see. And most companies didn't see it as an issue because they thought, you know, it's there. It's a, there's nothing that we need to do extra to make others feel welcome. So we constantly saw the images in, in the magazines, in the storage windows, in any piece of garment that you pick up and you look at the label. If there was an image, it was not a woman of color. And companies were okay with that because no one ever challenged them. Um, Judith Cassiama, who's a friend of ours who works out in um, out of BC, she uh called out one of the, the major companies here to say, hey, where are we in the story? Where are we in this conversation? And why aren't we being included in the story as well? So the more we've challenged these conversations and challenged the narratives, 
the more we've seen that there needs to be a story around inclusion of not just women of color, but people of color in general. And what about obstacles, things like finances, lack of exposure? You've been quoted as saying that you feel that the outdoors has an elite feel to it and that it doesn't require a brand experience for you to be a part of nature. Here, here. The first time I stepped out into nature, I, for the first eight years of my life, I hiked in Converse running shoes. And I think I paid 35 bucks for those shoes in a, in a sto- in an off-brand store. Me, were they the most comfortable shoes? Probably not. But they did allow me to get outside, and they did allow me to step into fishing spaces that I would have never gone into had I been looking for those $300 boots to make sure that I was the most comfortable. Um, I, I want people to understand that as much as it... You know, you'll, you you buy the quality gear, you spend all the money. If you're looking for an introductory experience in nature, something as simple as you're walking into your backyard or your neighborhood park doesn't require that expensive piece of gear to get you out there. And and that is something that I want to see change in how we approach who gets outside. Why does the great outdoors live so strongly inside you? What was your your growing up like? What was that time like for you? Um, I'll take you back with me to Jamaica, where I was born and raised and grew up with my grandma in what we call the country. And it was just um, a sort of a mining town and a sort of a farming town where a lot of what I do was centered on not staying inside the house, either going out farming with my grandma and walking behind her and having her tell me stories of birds that I thought she was actually just making up names for these things. And then as I grew up and started birding myself, realized that they were actual bird names. So growing up in, and having her as the, the matriarch of the family and her driving my passion for the outdoors through taking me outside with her kind of carried that conversation into Canada and wanted it to maintain and be a part of my story and also to inspire my 16-year-old daughter to get out there and be a part of that conversation as well. So let's have some fun. And that's exactly what you try to do. You try to change the narrative of, well, but right, boiling it right down to the fun that you have. What are the kinds of activities that you encourage other women to get involved in when it comes to Brown Girl Outdoor World? So the fun, the fun stuff goes from the fishing to the hiking to the camping, the rock climbing, the... Mm-hmm. Um, We're now working on an event to do ice climbing at the end of the month. We are looking at, you know, just going hiking, going snowshoeing, anything that you see that is created in the outdoors that you feel that you've never been welcomed in. We're taking that and we're saying, hey, we're going to make it fun for you. We're going to make it exciting. We're going to give you a community in which you can feel safe to get out there and do it. We also just wanted to let people know that no matter what the image tells you, that there is a space out there for you to get involved. Your slogan is, or one of them, one of the things you believe in, change the narrative with adventure. Are you doing that? I do believe I am making the best effort I can to change that. And having community buy-in has been the biggest part of seeing that change and the joy and the excitement that comes around individuals when an event goes up and it sells out in, in literally 30 minutes. It says to me, this is how we're going to change the narrative, and this is how we're going to get more people outside to want to know, love, and protect nature. What is your message uh, through this Black History Month? Is that we were never disconnected from nature. We might have taken, we might have been forced to pause for a bit, but it is time that we reclaim the relationship that we've had. We reclaim the relationship that our ancestors had with the outdoors, and we reclaim our sense of being and pride in stepping outside and getting involved in, in, in the care and protection of nature. Is it important, do you think, that Mother Nature does not discriminate? We, it, Mother Nature doesn't discriminate, 
But Mother Nature is not a person, and we do have people who come into that space to create discriminatory acts. So I, I generally shy away from saying Mother Nature doesn't discriminate because it gives a false sense of safety for everyone. I think we Mother Nature doesn't discriminate. We should try to keep it that way but work towards creating a space where the individuals who come out into nature understand that discrimination is not welcome there. And what experience do the women who join you on these adventures, what do they come away with? They come away with a sense of community. They come away with a sense of safety, a sense of enjoyment, and a sense of understanding that they too have a place in the outdoor. And no matter what that conversation might look like for them, whether it's time in your backyard with your kids, time in your backyard observing the birds or going across the street to a city park, Mm. there is a space outside for you. Demisha, has establishing Brown Girl Outdoor World changed your view of life? It has not changed my view. It has has enhanced Mm. what I saw as life before. It would have been initially, you know, let let me get outside by myself. Establishing Brown Girl Outdoor World says to me, let me take other people so that this thing that I'm now enjoying, I can make sure that others are understanding how their presence here is, is needed. And so they can work with me to make sure that for years down the line, we can still enjoy that. And that perspective that I now have about taking community can be something that's shared for a very long time to come. Where can people go to find out more, Demisha? You can find me on our website at browngirloutdoorworld.com, on Instagram at browngirloutdoorworld, and on our Facebook page again, on at Brown Girl Outdoor World. Demisha Dennis, thank you for being with us on the feed. Over to Kevin Frankish now and the Black Mums Financial Summit. Here is an important lesson. If you want to see change in a community, if you want to effect that change, go right to the top, to the bosses. The Moms. And that is the case with this group, Black Moms Connection, and its founder is Tanya Hales. Hi, Tanya. How are you? I'm fine, Kevin. How are you? I am fine. Am I right? You go right to mom, right? If if you want something done. I mean, in most communities, it really is the mom that's in the household. Go after mom, you know. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. <laughs> that's right. Even dads agree. You know, go ask your mother. Um, but you know what, Tanya? How effective can you be? I'm looking here. You started out in 2015 with twelve, just 12 women in Toronto. Yes. I asked my friends, hey, if I started this thing, would you join? Um, I was in other mom group spaces, but... I, I wanted to ask the question, is there sunscreen for black skin? It was a, after a day of being out with, at a splash pad with my two-year-old. And knowing that I wasn't going to be able to get the answer to that very specific question about black skin um, and probably others is why I said, hey, I'm going to do this thing. And uh, yeah, it, <laughs> it took off from there. So I was trying to lead you into the growth here. Come on, brag a little. You start out with 12 <laughs> women. Work with me here, would you, Tanya? You start, out with, you, you start out with 12 women, then what happened? So in 2016, in the spring, which is very much aligned with what was happening in the U.S. with Black Lives Matter, we went from 400 to 4,000 in that two months. So that growth let me know, okay, this is a thing. It's more than just me and my 12 friends. And uh, th- that same year, we incorporated as a nonprofit organization. So today, we are an online global village. We have chapters from Asia to Atlanta to Alberta of over 30,000. Wow. Like that, it, you should be so proud, honestly. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm more in awe of it than anything <laughs> else because, you know, they always say, like, if you build it, they will come. And that's eventually what ended up happening and continues to happen. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful that people trust that it's a safe space for them to be in. What, what does this space offer Black moms? Well, first and foremost, it being safe. And I know that we've heard a lot about safe spaces, and it seems very frou-frou and snowflakey. But when you have a situation that happens with your child at school, and it's race-related specifically, you know that you can't go into another space without, oh, are you sure it's about race? Or you're just making it about race? And we don't see color and all those other things that gaslight and diminish what's really happened to you and your child. So being able to go to other women who look like you, who probably had the same experience, to say, this happened, here's what you need to do step by step, walk them through it, give them that support, is immeasurable. You know, and especially now in the pandemic, so many people are isolated from their villages. You know, you can't go see your mom or drop your child off the way that you used to be. So you now rely upon digital communities like this one to get through my child just won't sleep or my child won't, doesn't want to eat bananas today, even though last week they were all about bananas. You know, all the things. And there's some things that I very much say are universal to motherhood. Mm-hmm. But there are extra layers of the parenthood cake that black mothers have to deal with. And indeed, it's some, it's something a lot of people just can't even imagine. In fact, this might be a good time for me to say, listen, if you don't believe there is such a thing as systemic racism, well, you know what? Just I can't convince you. Just turn off your radio right now. Um, it, 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 I love this fact it's a, it's a safe space. I mean, asking a simple question like, is there suntan, uh, you know, sunblock for black skin? Because and that's yeah. not, and that's not a race thing. Black skin reacts to the sun extremely differently. It 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 is totally different. So yeah. It, so is there? By the way, yes, there is. There's great okay. brands, uh, including Black Girl Sunscreen. I've used it in like Barbados. This was before pandemic when we could travel. Um, and even just not even just that, our skin reacts differently to the sun. Our skin looks different. If I went to shoppers and got the typical stuff that was available, I would look like Casper the Ghost. It doesn't, <laughs> that zinc just doesn't melt, melt all the way into black skin the same way. So that's why that, com- that question is relevant. It's not me trying to make everything about race. It's yeah. me, I didn't want my son to look like Casper the Ghost with a splash pad. So <laughs> I really just wanted to, you know, it was a simple, it's a very simple question, but it just shows that there's certain things that other people never have to think about. Because they're not centered. They're not the default, yeah. right? So that's, that's a really important part of why we exist. Give a person a fish and you feed them for a week. Teach a person to fish and you uh, <laughs> feed them for life, right? And, and I think that's what you're doing with your program, your financial literacy program, or as you call it, the, the FinLit program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the convert. I'm very big on ask people what they want instead of assuming what they want and letting the conversations naturally happen. We constantly had people like, hey, who's saving for their kids' education? Do you have a will? How do I get one written? Um, even thinking about their parents, like, hey, my parents are getting to that age and I have to take care of them. So I saw that financial conversations were always happening in the group. So once we incorporated as a nonprofit organization, we were able to take the conversation offline and we launched the Finland Summit. And we did that in partnership with PD, um, who's continued to be a sponsor and a partner of ours for five years. 
because they see the importance, they see the impact that we're doing. It's not just about helping a mom in Brampton or helping a mom in Thornhill. We're really changing the Black community. And how we're doing that specifically with the Finland Summit is making sure that all the information is culturally relevant. You can go on any website, Google financial literacy, and you're going to get a whole bunch of resources. But are they going to be specific to the Black experience? And I'm going to give you a fun example. Okay. So the Canadian government has um, a budget that people can use for their household, et cetera. And, you know, you go through your expenses and your income. And when it comes to hair care, it said on it, the average Canadian spends $30 a pop on their hair. Black women laugh at That's that. A, that, by, that, by the way, is... Product that by the way is twenty. That by the way is twenty nine dollars and fifty cents more than I spend on mine. But 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 continue. Exactly right. That is our hair care products alone. To get our hair done is never going to cost us thirty dollars. Which means that we're not included in this average mm-hmm. median. And so this budget, it's easy for us to say, "Oh, I'm bad at budgeting according to what the Canadian average is." No, the Canadian average is not built and made for diversity in mind. If I want to eat. Food from, you know, I'm, I'm Jamaican, you know, heritage. If I want to eat Jamaican foods, I have to go to a separate grocery store yes. and pay a higher price. So that yeah. means my grocery bills are higher. I'm not bad at budgeting. I'm just not included. So having it be culturally relevant, having black financial professionals talk to black people, because our very first one was only for the moms. They said they wanted their partners to be included. So now it's a financial literacy summit for and by the black community and really having an impact of, okay, let's talk about saving. Let's talk about, yes, there's external racial discriminations that we still have to battle, but let's see how we can fix that internally. What can we change about our mentality? What did we learn from our parents who immigrated here, who were thrown into a whole new credit system and couldn't teach us any better? There's so much cultural nuance that's important that you're never just going to be able to find by Googling. And there's there's also that danger as well of delving into the financial world and having the color of your skin held against you applying for a loan or, or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those numbers and stats are there, right? Mm-hmm. And and even just in the black community, we are debt adverse. We don't like <laughs> we don't like loans. We know a historically we were discriminated against even getting them. So we've always had to find other ways. But that means when you look at uh, black businesses and where their funding comes from, it comes from community, it comes from them just bootstrapping themselves more than their white counterparts because we culturally don't like going after loans. And if we do go after loans, we're not getting them, even if we're qualified. So it is really important to think about the ways that systemic racism still plays in all aspects of all parts of life, you know, financial health media, medicine, all of it. But in this particular realm, you know, knowing that we have a partner in TD who says, okay, we hear you and we see that this is an issue for your specific community. How can we help you? And they've done that and allow us to do the important work of changing our community, which will lead to a healthier Canadian economy. And and I mean, come on, TD isn't stupid. They're business people. This makes good business sense as well. I mean, it's a very nice thing to do, but they are really kind of cultivating new customers. Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing. I I learned a long time ago that uh, philanthropy is not about charity. It's about marketing, right? So I'm 
I'm highly aware that this is a marketing uh, endeavor. And it is for all sponsors of yeah. any particular program or event. Nothing wrong but with that. But it also goes a lot deeper than that. And I think what I, I really champion more than anything else is that I have a relationship with folks on the inside of PD. I can talk to them and say, well, what are your internal goals? Where are they coming from? When I'm applying, am I applying to a regional level or national level? How can we, you know, what do you need to see from us in order to grow our relationship? That is invaluable because a lot of times when you're a nonprofit organization, you just kind of you apply for the grant or the sponsorship, they approve you, they write a check, you do the thing, you write a report, and that's it. But for, for BMC and, and for TD, there's way more conversations that's happening. There's way more opportunities than beyond them just sponsoring the summit. Do you have to be a mom to join? Yes. Specifically, you have mm-hmm. to be a black mom to join. I okay. know that that is sometimes a point of contention for folks. But as I mentioned before, there are, you know, if we look at parenthood has a cake, there's additional layers that black mm-hmm. women have to deal with that other moms yeah. just don't. And we want to make sure that the space remains safe for those yeah. who are a part of that community. Uh, okay. So it's blackmomsconnection.com. Uh, yeah. You can learn all about your, your Finlet uh, conference, your financial literacy conference uh, that usually happens in the fall. But there's all sorts of resources there and you can join up. Uh, I love that it's from Toronto, that it started there, but it's now worldwide. Yes. All right. Thank yeah, you very we, much. We went from the GTA to the world. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, I could talk to you for, for much longer. This is such a, a, an incredible project, and I wish you all the luck in the world. Tanya Hill uh, is uh, with Black Moms Connection. She is the founder of Black Moms Connection. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you, Kevin. When we come back, making the pitch for the Commonwealth Games. Black History Month on 105.9 The Region. Listen live at 1059theregion.com. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Jim Lang is next with the initial plans and the bid for the 2030 Commonwealth Games. Well, it's never too early to start planning, and there are a great group of people looking ahead to a bid for the Hamilton 2030 Commonwealth Games, something that's going to be very unique both on the playing field and performance field and off. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by their bid chairman, Louis Forporti. Louis, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you today? Good. Uh, Hamilton2030.ca, it's an ambitious plan. Where did the genesis for this plan to hold such a big event like the Commonwealth Games in Hamilton come from? Well, years ago, a group of community leaders uh, reflected on the fact that the Games were born in Hamilton in 1930, then called the Empire Games, and had resolved to try to bring them back for their centenary in 2030. The city had tried on a number of occasions uh, previously and failed at various stages of the bidding process, but there was a great deal of confidence that this time on the 100th would be the time in which we brought it back. Now, and you mentioned in the press release, this is very different now, planning for a major game. So we're witnessing the Beijing Winter Olympics. Things are very different. A pandemic has changed the way we stage games. Has it changed the way you bid on games and how you have the infrastructure for games? Absolutely, in a variety of different ways. And we'll confess that a good deal of our thinking around how to do this changed through the pandemic and as a result of its impacts. But games everywhere, the Olympics you referenced, all of them, are undergoing a lot of disruption because the business model 
is not sustainable. Cost too much. There are other societal needs. Uh, taxpayers have a, a justifiable concern about expending a ton of money on a big event. And we were inspired by the Commonwealth Games Federation's mission statement, which is about building prosperous, healthy, sustainable communities. And as business leaders, we decided to really lean into that, leveraging entrepreneurship, innovation, really a business ethic, and, and look to privately finance as much of the game's infrastructure as possible, changing the business model. Before we get to some of the facilities involved, uh, I did find it interesting that with so many people trying to pay lip service to the Indigenous communities in Canada, you and your staff and your bid were at the forefront saying, hey, this is not just our games. It's also the games of the Six Nations of the Grand River and the Mississaugas of the Credit. Make no bones about it that this is also for the Indigenous Canadians as well. Correct. I mean, look, we, we want it to be as meaningfully inclusive as possible. And although efforts have been made for a long time in a variety of different sporting events to include Indigenous people ceremonially, we felt it wasn't enough. They are nation partners in our efforts, so they are stakeholder partners in the design and crafting of the bid, and ultimately we hope in its delivery. And because so much of what we're trying to do, through the private sector especially, is intended to help communities today, benefiting Indigenous communities and working with them in a variety of different ways as entrepreneurs and in experiential learning for young people is a key part of what we want to accomplish. Speaking with Louis Forporti, the bid chairman for Hamilton 2030, the Commonwealth Games Hamilton, the center point, I would think, is... Tim Hortons Field, Tim Hortons Stadium for the Tiger Cats. Uh, when it was first built, people were like, oh, that's nice. But the longer it's been around, people realize it's a real center point, uh, center point and uh, sporting facility for Hamilton, for the Hamilton-Wentworth area, for Hamilton-Burlington. You can really do a lot of things with a Tim Hortons Field to the benefit of a big games bid like Hamilton 2030. Yes, absolutely. But I would note, and you'll see this if you go to the Hamilton2030.ca website, one of the unique differentiators for our bid is the extent to which we're trying to regionalize the game. Mm. So we have communities throughout the Niagara Peninsula, Kitchener, Waterloo, Burlington, Milton, Brampton, centered on cricket, and of course, Six Nations for lacrosse that are all part of the catchment area for the games. We hope to spread the benefit around communities as widely as possible. And of course, Hamilton is the epicenter. There'll be a good deal of events in Hamilton leveraging some of the assets that were created for Pan Am, like the stadium, of course. And as some may know, the city itself is undergoing a renaissance and redevelopment with the construction of a light rail transit line to the center of the city, which will be ready for 2030, and a host of other private sector developments, which will be part of the games. And I would think rowing at the Henley Regatta Club in St. Catharines? Yes, that's currently the plan, but we're still receiving and soliciting submissions from municipalities hmm. and private sector partners on venues and sports that could be included in the games. The game sports program has not been finalized internationally, and there's a great deal of flexibility over the sorts of sports and events that will ultimately be included in 2030. I think one of the things I find fascinating about these kind of bids, Lewis, is we see sporting events and large events at different countries around the world, and it seems to be in other countries around the world, and other municipalities, uh, they all get behind these kind of bids. And I'm not, I just find it. Dis- it's discouraging to me that any time a bid comes up for this, all these people come out of the woodwork to try to shoot it down. Like, why do we need this? Well, why don't we need this? Because, I mean, people try to shoot down the Pan Am Games and the legacy of the, all the facilities are still being used. We still see facilities being used at the 88 Winter Olympics in Calgary. I mean, to me, this is the kind of thing that would have a legacy for decades to come after the 2030 Hamilton Games. Well, uh, yes, of course, that's part of the dynamic. And I Obviously, the pandemic and its economic impacts has only exacerbated that. In Hamilton, we look at a problem, a real endemic problem with homelessness. 
And folks are rightly saying, why should we spend all this time and attention focused on an event so many years from now when we have these pressing problems? How we've approached that is to say, listen, we're not interested in the event alone. We're interested in resourcing a movement that is centered on making our community stronger today. And the only way really we found to be able to do that meaningfully is to get the private sector involved because they're in a position to make commitments, to expend money, to build immediately. And that's been a huge part of, of, of our effort and, and our resolve. It's a differentiator for our bid. And we have received an enormous amount of positive support regionally from a variety of different organizations and groups on that vision. And it's now on us to build that out fully and to raise awareness of it through shows like yours. Before we get to next steps, Louis, I think about the facilities, the really new state-of-the-art facilities of places like McMaster, uh, like Brock, uh, like Waterloo, and Wilfrid Laurier, and a lot of the universities and colleges in that area of Ontario. And there is a lot of flexibility for the bid process to have different events, whether it's boxing, gymnastics, whatnot, at different little areas. You've put your finger on something that's really unique. Normally, you have a small bid group that creates a bid, and they invite people to just support it or not. What we've done is gone very large into the community to discuss this with a variety of organizations and private sector partners to say, listen, what do you think is needed and relevant in your community? In some cases, we're going to use existing assets that have been created, and we're going to get a greater dividend from them. In other cases, there are opportunities for us to build something new, largely with private sector support and funding that are relevant and needed now in those communities. And in the end, Southern Ontario, between what exists and what we can build together, I think will allow us to create a really compelling games. The, the, the games will be awarded in November this year, November 2022. Lewis, what are the next steps leading up to the bid process and the vote that you have to take? Well, first of all, I'm going to correct you. We, we expect that the international bid uh, will be uh, awarded in the fall of 2023. Oh. We need to get, yeah, we need to get a Canadian bid to compete internationally out of this country within the year, and we have gone through a multi-month process with the province, federal government, and other stakeholders to come up with concepts. Our group is now working to finalize those concepts into a more formal bid document. We hope to commence what's called a multi-party agreement negotiation with the feds and province and others later this year, and it's the end of that process that will result in the bid that is submitted internationally, Ah, and then we'll wait. And then we'll wait. And, and of course, we're incredibly hopeful knowing what's going on globally. Uh, other countries that have stepped out of 2030, the work that we've done, that we've got a heck of a lot of winning the rights to 2030 and hosting it. And off the top of your head, I mean, do you know all the potential bids and all the different Commonwealth countries that are looking to try to host 2030? Yeah, we have a very good sense of that. And, and, and some that had come up, like England and Australia, have stepped away because of Olympic bids in the case of Australia. Yeah. Uh, that are proceeding, and so they're not going to do the Commonwealth Games as well. Uh, they're going to be, because it's the centenary, we feel at least one or two competitive bids for 2030, but we're occupying the pole position, obviously, and not just because it's the centenary of the Games, it's because what we put together as a model, private sector involvement and engagement, we feel is more sustainable, and it's something the Federation will want to celebrate people have got to get on this check out their website check out everything they're about hamilton2030.ca is the website get more details about the bid for hamilton 2030 the commonwealth games lewis for Porty. i can't wish you anything but the utmost success i'm fascinated by your process by your mindset how you're putting it together this is the new way of doing things on a grand scale and i wish you nothing but the best of luck really appreciate it thanks so much my pleasure take care 
If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.